Good evening. How is everyone? Blessed is a good answer. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3. Two weeks ago, we started a study in this book. We were in chapters 1 and 2. And I shared with those of you who were here that this is a book which is all about man's wisdom. And you might say, well, why would we study a book that is all about man's wisdom? Because in studying about man's wisdom, we see how it is inferior to God's wisdom. The Bible talks about the foolishness of God being greater than the wisdom of man. And that is to say that God is so much wiser, his ways so much better. But Solomon was a man who was given so much wisdom by God, from God. And instead of using that wisdom to serve God, he used that wisdom to try to find fulfillment apart from God. And so, yes, he had this great wisdom, but in using it improperly, he came up short. He came up empty. He, he didn't find the meaning of life until the end of his life when he realized that apart from God, man's wisdom is meaningless. And so the book has as its theme man's wisdom, but really we're talking at this point in the book about how everything, according to him, in his life, leading up to the end of his life, everything was meaningless. And he says that word 37 times in this book. So as we study, it's not so much that the things that he shares are true. Okay, the Bible is the inspired truth of God, but some of the things he shares from a man's perspective aren't actually true like the counselors of Job who shared their counsel and wasn't true. The word of God is true, but it shares sometimes things that aren't true so that we can understand what is true. And so we're going to see this evening, we're going to look at chapter 3 and maybe even chapter 4, and as we look at this, he's saying, look, everything's meaningless, and then he's gone through and talked about the different things that are in fact meaningless. And uh, we started out last week with that as a theme, as an introduction, that everything is meaningless. And then as we got into the study and uh, we started to look more closely at it, we saw that he told us that man's knowledge and his wisdom are meaningless. That is the very theme of this book. <laughs> and that pleasure and great accomplishments are meaningless. Even working hard is meaningless if you're doing these things and experiencing these things apart from God. So with that as our introduction, let's pray. We'll get right into chapter 3. And the theme of chapter 3 is life is meaningless. And it truly is apart from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that our lives are not meaningless. Because we have given our lives to you. Those of us who have given our hearts to you know that our life is meaningful, purposeful. We have a purpose. You have a purpose that you're working in and through our lives as we serve you, as we're called according to your purposes, we have meaningful lives. And Solomon went out of his way to make it clear that life apart from you and apart from living according to your word will only leave us empty and void. He calls it vanity, meaningless. And we know that our lives are valuable to you and that the purpose you've given us is meaningful if we surrender our hearts to you. Help us to see by contrast how awful our lives would be, and maybe even were, before we gave our hearts to you. And we might always give our hearts to you and surrender and serve you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's first look at just verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. Some of you are probably 
a little older like me, and you'll recognize these words almost immediately if you know anything about the music of the 60s and 70s and you've heard of the birds, you'll know that this section was actually turned into a song. And uh, interestingly enough, the song was actually supposed to be encouraging. However, the writer here is using these words to make it clear. It's actually him complaining about life apart from God. Just goes to show you how people oftentimes get the scripture wrong. But we read in verse 1, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, why all of this contrast? Why back and forth? Uh, Listen, the point of this section is that a, a devotion to this earthly life, apart from God, a devotion to this earthly life is, in fact, something that will only end in frustration. You'll only ever be frustrated if you try to find meaning in life apart from God. That's why so many people are frustrated. That's why so many people are in despair and depressed and discouraged, because they're trying to find life's meaning apart from life's author, the one who blesses our lives. And if you do that, you're going to come up short. So he describes life as cyclical, repetitive, and ultimately meaningless in the grand scheme. You see those contrasts, you know, born, die, plant, uproot, almost like it just doesn't matter. Whatever you do is going to be undone. You know, whatever you say or feel this minute, it's going to change the next. It's just life goes on in this repetitive cycle of ultimately meaningless schemes. And so he's complaining about the mundane nature of life, the monotonous aspect of life. He's not praising life. He's talking about how life was for him in his past as he didn't serve God, but rather just tried to find meaning on his own. So while these verses have been used in song to celebrate life, Solomon is actually complaining about life. He's poetically describing the monotony of a life lived apart from a relationship with God. And anyone who's walked apart from Christ for some period of time in their life knows this is true. Life just doesn't feel like it means anything. And so you have to add things to your life which are usually sinful, to try to find meaning in life. It could be drugs and alcohol. It could be relationships. It could be all sorts of things that we engage in and and involve ourselves in to try to find why life is so dull, why life is so meaningless. You know, as a young person in my teenage years, only a few years ago, I do remember that we were always looking for meaning in life. We were always, what's life all about? Now, for us, you know, I'm a musician, You know, I played a number of different instruments. So, you know, it was always about, we used to say, making it big. You know, everybody knows your name and you play in a band and, you know, you're famous. And and so that was the meaning of life. You know, that was what it was all about. So in high school, everything was, for me at least, was all about music. And I actually became a working musician. I actually did make money. But, you know, clearly very few people in that industry actually become world uh, known Uh, personalities. And those that do, most of them, they end up realizing that life is meaningless. You know, I was reading an article, and I I have to be 
clear. I don't really know anything about reggaeton and stuff. I don't really know too much about that. But this one artist, apparently, I'm not going to remember his name, but he had that Despacito. He had another hit. I, I'm not going to remember. Sal will tell you later because he's more up on that kind of stuff. And then Pastor Sal will know more. But I do know that he just made a statement that he's leaving the music industry to serve his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was like, well, you know, I, I hope it lasts. I hope it's real. I hope it, it actually happens for him. But everything he said that I read in the article, because I couldn't pass that up, you know, everything I read made sense to me. He realized that with all the success, so he actually made it big, right? With all the success, with everything he achieved, traveling the world, he, he found it was meaningless, and he really just wanted to serve the Lord and share the gospel. He got it. And Solomon actually came to that point, too. With all of his success, he, he finally realized the only thing that's going to bring any meaning is to serve God and keep his commandments. So it's interesting to see that some people get it all and, and figure it out. Some people, sadly, get it all, and it only pushes them further and further away from God. And it's so sad. It's so sad. More and more people dropping dead of fentanyl poisoning. And I don't listen. I wasn't really ever involved in the drug culture. You know, I had issues with drinking <clears throat> early in my life, but not drugs. But I, I understand that apparently with fentanyl, you, you, you sort of very quickly develop a tolerance to it in little doses. But you also, if you stop using for a period of time, you also lose that resistance to that particular drug. It's not quite like heroin. There's, there's more time involved with a heroin addiction, but then they, they have this laced with fentanyl. So what happens is, and this is really sad. You ready for this? Someone tries to get clean. And so they have been taking drugs with fentanyl. They haven't died, but then they try to get clean. And then after a couple of weeks, they go back to it. They fall back. But because they've been away from the drug, they take the last dose they took and it's fatal because their bodies have lost the resistance to the drug very quickly as much as they built up a resistance very quickly. And, of course, it's so powerful that a little dosage off means that they, they die. And so we're seeing many young people who, and it's sad, the people that are trying to get off the drugs are the ones oftentimes that when they have that moment of weakness, die because they were doing okay and they had a moment of weakness. Does that not sound like Satan? It's so sad to me. You know, I know most of us probably at one point in our lives say, well, you shouldn't do drugs. I get that, but there are people dropping dead because of this stuff. And it's even worse than drugs. It's poison. And, and yes, it's very powerful and effective, but isn't that something? The people who are trying to do better and then on the way have some failures. Unlike heroin, fentanyl just kills them. And so we're seeing many, many young people trying to find meaning in life through drugs, dying. It's destroying them. And then, of course, I remember because I, I you know, lived through the whole AIDS crisis. You know, there was a time when people were trying to find fulfillment through sexual encounters. And sadly, many of them, many, many of them contracted AIDS. And there was no treatment. There was no cure. There was no therapies. Now there are. But at the time, many people died because they tried to find meaning in that. And there are so many things we can try to find meaning in that are all sin. And the reason God says it's sin is he's not trying to keep us away from fun. He's trying to protect us. He knows that sin hurts us, so he hates sin because he loves us. So sadly, life becomes very cyclical and monotonous and repetitive for people. And they look to infuse something into their lives that will change that monotony.
Apart from God, it can be very dangerous to do the things that we're talking about and other things which are sinful. And my heart breaks to hear that people, you know, in a moment of weakness, their whole life can be devastated by one bad decision in one moment. And oftentimes it happens when people are very young. So, yes, Solomon tried to find meaning in all of these things that we're talking about, and he didn't ultimately. Fortunately, he lived long enough to figure it out, like that artist that I mentioned before. So his conclusions here are not that different from the philosophy of the ancient Greeks and others who sat around thinking and philosophizing and trying to figure out life, and ultimately they came to the same conclusions that, that this man, Solomon, did. That is, life is meaningless. And of course, it is apart from God. It really is. We were built to worship God, to have a relationship with God. So without that, what would be the point? I want you to think about a light, just a, a lamp. And if you had a lamp in your living room, and I've been going around now and replacing all of the lights, uh, light bulbs in my house with LEDs. Yeah, whatever. You know, they don't even sell most of the other type anymore. But I've been going around, and as they, they die off, I replace it with an LED. It lasts forever. If you look around here a couple of years ago, uh, <laughs> me and Jim, we climbed up here, and I think Frank helped us too, uh, we, we replaced all of these lights, even the ones way up there. Manny was helping us as well with LEDs because the old lamps, just they, they just, quite frankly, burned out too quickly. And do you want to climb up there? Because I, I drew a line, you know, like now I'm like 58. I'm not climbing those ladders anymore. So if they burn out, you're going to see a light out until somebody is braver than me wants to climb up there. But if you were to take a lamp or, 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 or a light fixture and you took the bulb out, what use is it? right? I mean, it's designed to have that light bulb in it so that it actually does something. And that really describes the life without Christ. All the necessary parts are there. Everything could work, but the most significant and crucial part is missing. And that's a relationship with God. And that's what this man is describing for us. The Greeks did as well. So this man is burdened by life because in and of itself, it brings no eternal satisfaction. So... And now we're quoting, uh, what was it, uh, Mick Jagger, 1965, right? For those of you who are even older than me. All of this description here really tells us that life apart from God is meaningless. Verse 9, we'll read uh, 9 through 11. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And this, again, is sort of like him crying out, burdened by the fact that he just can't figure life out, again, apart from God. It doesn't make any sense. He had the necessary wisdom to know the truth, but he didn't live in subjection to it. This oftentimes describes someone who was raised in the church, maybe even homeschooled. They have the truth. They know the truth up here. But then they come out of the church or they go to school or go away to college or, the, you know, whatever. They graduate and they, and they have all this wisdom and knowledge and they know the truth. But then what do they do? They go out and they experiment with life and they actually try to prove these things. It's what Solomon did. And look where it led. If you don't live in subjection to the truth you have, you're going to be twice as miserable as the person that doesn't have that truth. You know too much. You know too much. It's like the, the Christian who tries to go back and enjoy his sin before he was a Christian, and he can't. 
not like he used to. It used to be much more enjoyable, but now he has the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he knows it's bad for him, and so it makes it worse. This man had an eternal understanding, but he chose to live contrary to that understanding. He found the truth of God's sovereignty to be a limitation to his own humanity, and it is. He's like, no matter what I do, God God's in control. And that works great if you're surrendered to God, but what if you're not surrendered to God? What if you're fighting against God? What if you're, you're sinning against God? Then that becomes a frustrating experience, and that's what he's described here. Unfortunately, his great knowledge and wisdom only brought him frustration and despair. Let's look at what it says here. I think I only read uh, verses 12 through 13. Let's keep reading verse 14. Actually, I read verses 9 through 11. Let's read uh, verses 12 through 15. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. All of this is true, by the way. And whatever is has already been and whatever will be has already been before. And God will call the past to account. So this is a man that knew the truth. That, that section makes that clear. But he wasn't living according to the truth. See, knowing the truth and obeying the truth are two different things. And that's what he describes for us. This man, burdened by life, because in and of itself, it brings no eternal satisfaction. Now, living for this earthly life alone ultimately brings no eternal gain. If you're just living for the earthly life, you, you gain nothing out of this life. God in his sovereignty has intentionally subjected creation to frustration, according to Romans chapter 8. It's not supposed to make sense apart from him. You're only going to be frustrated. And in God's time, I like what it said earlier in this section, he has made everything beautiful in its time. In God's time, uh, we know that he will redeem both man and creation itself for all eternity. So he's going to make everything just the way it should be in his time. In the meantime, we need to be living for him. So, a devotion to God makes life satisfying and provides us with eternal purpose. That's the conclusion shared here by a man looking back over his life retrospectively. As I said, he had the necessary wisdom to know the truth, but he didn't live in subjection to the truth. He had an eternal understanding, but he chose to live contrary to that understanding. Because as I've said, he found the truth of God's sovereignty, that God's in control of all things, a limitation. It got in the way of him wanting to find, through his own humanity, the meaning of life. And so he found only frustration and despair with all that great knowledge and wisdom. So, without an eternal perspective, there is no hope or purpose to our earthly lives. Now, you see why a book like this can actually teach you a truth. Even showing you the negative side of things, it shows you the truth. And that's the point. Let's read verses 16 through 22. I'm going to read the, actually, yeah, let's read the whole section. And I saw something else under the sun in place, or in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals 
Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust, and to dust all return. And who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So you have two things here. You have a man sort of sharing the process of his frustration and the conclusions he came to at the end of his life. He's realizing, in all that I tried to do, I came up empty, I came up short, and ultimately I realized serving God is the only way to find true peace, true happiness. Real understanding only comes through a relationship with God. So he's making that clear to us. One of the things he mentions here is that God's pending judgment of mankind is the blessed hope that he will still and soon set things right. That's our hope, God intervening and setting things right. And so he talks about in the place of judgment, there was wickedness. In the place of justice, there's wickedness. That is corruption in our world. But he goes on to say in verse 17, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. And there'll be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. That is to be judged. So the only hope we really have in this world is for God to intervene, to come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? All mankind, both the righteous and the wicked, will appear before God's judgment. He will judge and set things right. And there's a time for every activity under heaven and a time for every activity to be judged by God. That is, even the idle idle words we utter will be judged and called into account. So his judgment is actually what differentiates us, mankind, from the animal kingdom. Here he's expressing, expressing his fa- uh, frustrations by saying, like, we're not any different than the animals. And isn't it interesting, when you separate from God and you live your life for yourself, you're really kind of living a, an animal existence. You're really not li- living any differently than an animal. You're just living for this world and this life and eating and working and taking care of yourself, not thinking about anybody else necessarily, just living your life. It really is no different. But what he wants us to understand, while it's true that man's earthly existence does not differ greatly from the animal kingdom, it's not all there is to being a human being. It's not just your earthly existence. In that regard, yeah, okay, we're not that dissimilar to the animals. But wait a minute. His eternal and spiritual existence gives mankind a significant advantage over the animals. See, unlike the animals, we don't just live on instinct. We have a relationship and are called to have a relationship with God. Or our bodies will decay just like the animals, just like their carcasses, but we do have an eternal hope. And that comes out in some of what Solomon shares. And Jesus Christ has made it abundantly clear that in him, the spirit of man does rise upward. That, that we can answer that question that he struggled with because we know better. And so these great eternal truths only brought him frustration and despair because he wasn't subject to them. Okay, so let's move on. Life is meaningless. That's the point of chapter 3. Now we get into chapter 4, only 16 verses, but the point is this. Life's troubles are meaningless. And it's very important that you understand that's not true. God works through our troubles, our difficulties, our trials. We're told by Paul in the New Testament that 
these things develop perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. We, we grow through these experiences. But because he wasn't submitted to God, he saw no use to life's troubles. Now, what do you think about people in this world who don't serve God, who don't know God, who deny there is a God? When they go through trouble, how do you think they view the trouble in their life? The difficulties, wars, atrocities, cancer, sickness, illness, cataclysms. They view everything the way that this man views things. And so nothing begins to make sense. And many people, they despair. They even end their life because nothing makes any sense. It's all meaningless to them. But to the Christian, these times become moments of great hope because even though others despair, we know God is working through all these things. We have a hope that's eternal. Even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, life's troubles, it draws us closer to God. And we grow in our relationship with God such that we can oftentimes say as Christians, the trials that God allows me to go through make me more like Jesus Christ. So what a different worldview we have from the person that doesn't know God. Look at verses 1 through 3. He talks about oppression. I mean, oppression makes life miserable for many in this world. We know this. Look at verses 1 through 3. This is true. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Sounds like a guy who's in despair because he is apart from God. He looks at it would be better not to have been born. Job came to that conclusion on some level as well as he was suffering. He suffered greatly. But when Christ suffered, he understood there was a purpose to his suffering. He suffered on our behalf. And when we suffer, Paul tells us the truth of that suffering. Peter talks about this. You know, the fiery trials we endure. Don't think it's strange. These things are working for us. And we know that. And if you've ever been to a country that's oppressed, I've been to Cuba three times. If you've been to a country where there's true oppression, you'll find true hope in Christ. Because that oppression actually drives people to a place where they put their hope in him and they find life meaningful, not meaningless. So oppression does make life miserable for many in this world. And his observation of the oppressed brought him to despair. When observing injustice and oppression, we can wrongly assume that God is indifferent, that God doesn't care. Those that are suffering under oppression often cling to God's comfort in their trials. And then you begin to understand, how is it that you can go to a country like Cuba where people are oppressed and find such great faith in God and wonderful worship of God? That oppression God allows and uses to bring people closer to him. While he's not the author of it, he works through all things for our good. So when people who don't know God say, see, there's so much oppression in the world, and you compare that to the person who's actually under oppression and finds God and finds comfort in God, well, that's really two different stories, isn't it? Two different ways of looking at things. 
A person oppressed growing closer to God versus a person that witnesses oppression moving away from God and rejecting his word. See, the difference is one has a relationship with God, and so all things begin to make sense for them. As I said, those that are suffering under oppression often cling to God's comfort in their trials. And God works in the midst of oppression and injustice to bring comfort and hope. He better because there's a lot of oppression in in this world. There's a lot of injustice in this world. And this man's observation of life's injustices caused him to despair of life itself. And that's why the answer to all of the despair in life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? So verses 4 through 8. Here he tells us that a devotion to obtaining our selfish desires will only end in frustration. See, some people, they look at life and they say, well, if this is the way life is, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get everything I can. I'm going to try to find meaning in satisfying my flesh and myself. And and here's what we read in verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. That's very interesting. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, as we just look at that, and well, let's go on. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he said, or he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So this describes the person who's just trying to find meaning in life by devoting themselves to selfish desires. It's interesting that he mentions that enviously striving to have what others have won't bring contentment. Did you hear that? We used to call that keeping up with the Joneses. So somebody, I remember when I was a kid, I was thinking about this just the other day because we don't have a microwave and they're not super healthy, so we don't have one. But it's, it's interesting because I remember when people started getting microwaves and, you know, we didn't have one for a little while. You would have thought we were living in the Stone Age. All my friends had microwaves, you know, microwave, we got to get a microwave. You didn't have a microwave, you know? So it became this kind of thing where they were pretty expensive back then too. Everyone had to have one. Why? Because everyone had one. And, you know... <laughs> I'm not that old, but I do remember having a black and white TV. And then then everybody had to have a color TV. And then everyone had to have a widescreen TV. And then everyone had to have a flat screen TV. And then it had to be the size of the surface of the moon. You know, sometimes I drive past people's homes, and I'm like, whoa, is that a drive-in? What is that? That's their living room? It's a wall of color. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, Good, good resolution. I can see the words on the screen, you know. It's amazing how we went from like a little round tube, you guys who are as old as me or older, right? That, that was all distorted and rounded on the edges and in black and white to like, you know, IMAX in our living room. It's crazy. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Because someone had bigger and better. Someone had a better resolution. Someone had a nicer... And this happens with cars, homes. This happens with everything. And... Enviously striving to do that won't bring contentment. You're never satisfied. Because I remember one guy spent a lot of money back in the day. You wanted a big TV, which wasn't even that big back then. You spent a lot of money. Spent like two grand on this TV that's probably smaller than the TVs we all have now. And like a few weeks, he was telling me, after he bought it, there was an upgrade. And he got mad. And he went out and bought the new TV. 
How was I ever going to bring satisfaction? You know, fools come to ruin for not working at all. Did you notice that? The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So a fool comes to ruin for not working at all, while the envious strive for more than they need. So you have people out there, they can't pay their bills, but they've got the best television you've ever seen. You know, I often wonder about people living in impoverished neighborhoods, and they have iPhones. iPhones are expensive, have you noticed? Oh, you only have to pay a little each month. But it's a lot of money when you add it all up. It's not something I oftentimes say. They have money for these things, but, you know, you can't put clothes on your children or buy shoes for them. It's amazing what happens to people when they get caught up in that vicious cycle. Better to work to meet our needs and to have a peaceful and enjoyable life. You don't need to keep up with everyone else. Why? It's not going to make you happy anyway, because there's always going to be someone with more and better and bigger. Well, selfishly striving to amass great wealth won't bring contentment either. We saw that in verses 7 and 8. Working too much only isolates and alienates us from others in our lives. Notice there's a man all alone. Why was he all alone? He didn't have a son. He didn't have a brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He was very wealthy, but he was all alone. There's a lot of very wealthy people who don't have any relationships because all they do is work. And he comes to the conclusion at the end of his life, you know, this is miserable. This is a miserable business. Why am I doing this? This behavior is addictive. Do you know that? It's addictive. Just a little more. Just a little more. It's self-destructive. It destroys lives. In the end, we lose our lives by trying to save them for ourselves. And that sounds familiar to me. That's what Jesus told us would happen. If we seek our life, we'll lose it. But if we lose our life, that is, give our lives to him, we find it. Amen? So living without companionship, that is all alone, it makes life miserable for many in this world as well. I don't know too many people who like being all alone. Verse 9 tells us, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then it gives us a, a metaphor. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, what does all this mean? Life without companionship. It makes life miserable for many in this world. Being all alone, it's not the way God designed us. He did not design men and women to live insular and reclusive lives. It's not the way he designed us to be. Look at Genesis 2. A healthy life is one lived interdependently. Not independently and not dependently, but interdependently. With relationships, within a community, and that's where church comes in. When people say to me, well, I don't need to go to church, I think to myself, yes, you do. Well, why do I need to go to church? Well, it's not all about you. I mean, so many people, I don't need to go to church. Yeah, you don't need to go to church. But are you making yourself available to be used in others' lives? Are you building relationships? You know, fellowship isn't going to happen online. Sorry. It's not. We found that out in COVID, didn't we? Many people did. I was here. But, you know, I, many people found out you, you can't do church online. You can listen to a message. You can watch a service. But you can't do church online. Church in Greek, ekklesia, it actually means gathering. In Hebrew, the word that's translated church, it's, it's a congregation. It, 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 by, by definition, it involves where two or three are gathered. It, it means people together. 
And of course, in Hebrews, we're told not to forsake the gathering of ourselves. We're not supposed to do that. Now, why would that be? Because we're supposed to have interdependent lives. And many people become depressed and discouraged and despair because they're all alone. Maybe they're working too much. Relationships provide assistance, comfort, and protection. And he gives us this metaphor, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Have you ever seen rope that's three strands, a cord of three strands? It's, it's stronger than each of the individual cords. Because it's braided, it's stronger than the three. It's, it's exponentially stronger because of the way it's designed. And that's why you'll see rope is very strong rope has a braid of sorts, of three cords. Now, there is exponential strength in interdependent relationships, and that's why he gives us the example of the rope. A single cord is not as strong as a woven cord. It's not about rope. It's about human relationships. And where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the midst. And so as you look at this, it's a beautiful picture of, let's say, uh, a man and a wife with Christ at the center. But that, that's not the primary application. It's still a, a beautiful picture. But the idea, two or three, we come together for fellowship. That's a very strong thing. And it meets your needs. We're finding out through this man who spent a lot of time alone looking to seek after the meaning of life. We're finding out what's really important. And he makes that clear. And I think he gives us a beautiful picture to take home and think about. Finally, in verses 13 through 16, we learn that a devotion to obtaining power and authority will only end in frustration. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's things. For some people, you know, it's selfish things. But here we have a devotion to obtaining power and authority. Verse 13 says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king. We know nothing about that an old and foolish leader. Better a poor and wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun follow the youth, the king's successor. But there was no need, uh, there was no end to all the people who were before them But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is meaningless, chasing after the wind. So those who seek power and authority, that's chasing after the wind. It's meaningless as well. It It doesn't bring fulfillment. The failure of kings provides opportunities for less noble successors. And that oftentimes happens. That's the thing that Solomon is thinking about at the end of his life. Who's going to take over for him? Uh, He realizes uh, who he is. And so when he describes uh, the old but foolish king, uh, it really describes where he is at at that point in his life. And there is a, a young man, his son, who's coming up. And, of course, people didn't really follow him or respect him. And the, the young and the poor never command a great deal of respect from others. They certainly don't, not to the same degree as someone who's older and more experienced. Age and authority may command respect, but kings fail for a lack of wisdom and humility. And this king failed for exactly that. So even a wise young man succeeds in power. Even if a young wise man succeeds in obtaining power, he still might fall out of favor. So why do you put your hope in being in a position of power and authority? 
That, that's meaningless. Solomon found these things out the hard way. You and I have an opportunity to find them out the easy way. By listening to God's word and obeying God's word, we can avoid the pitfalls that someone much wiser than us made in his life. And he communicates these things, as I shared last week, Ecclesiastes means the teacher. And the teacher is really the Holy Spirit. He's the one helping us to see the truth that this man's life was meaningless because his relationship with God waned and he stood apart from God and rejected God's word and lived contrary to God's word. Why would we follow that poor example? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to obey you that we might be blessed. You tell us that we will be blessed if we obey your word. So give us understanding, give us knowledge, give us wisdom, and give us the power of your Holy Spirit to obey your word. Lord, the most important thing is that we submit our lives to you, that we give our hearts and our lives to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us newness of life. We know he's coming again to bring judgment, but our sins have been judged. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for your salvation. Help us to live in light of these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.